Coming up on Up in the Blue Seats, Igor Sisterkin made his NHL debut in a winning fashion on Tuesday. We discussed the rookie's long-awaited debut, the future at the goalie position, and Elias Anderson's saga with longtime Ranger beat writer Larry Brooks. We also are joined by a referee has officiated more games than anyone else in hockey, my good friend Carrie Fraser. All that and more next on Up in the Blue Seats with the New York Post. Ladies and gentlemen, we ask that you direct your attention to center ice for a special presentation. Welcome to the Up in the Blue Seats podcast, a New York Rangers podcast with the New York Post. Subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Rate the show five stars and write a nice review. The Post Rangers beat writer, Larry Brooks, and the referee that has officiated more hockey games than anyone ever, Kerry Frazier, joined the show today. But now, here's your host of Up in the Blue Seats, former Rangers great, number 10 on his jersey, and number one in our hearts, Ron Duguay. Hello, everyone, and it's been an interesting week with the Rangers going out west, not wondering what we're going to see, what kind of game was going to be played. Can they play a good road game? They go on the road. They lose three. The last game against Vancouver, I think it was a game that they could have won. They played well enough to win. Their goaltender just outworked them, outplayed them. They come home. Now they got to play Colorado. Colorado, the probably the team that scores the most goals, the biggest threat on the ice. How are they going to manage this? I know in the past that they've rebounded really well, but things were going to be different. Finally, we're going to see goaltender Igor Shesterkin make his debut against a team that can score a lot of goals. It didn't start very well. Two goals out of first three shots. And then at that point, wondering, uh-oh, there was a calm at the Garden as people were chanting, Igor, Igor. So what was it going to be like for him to rebound? And I think that's what, what everyone was looking for. And sure enough, he kept his good composure. But more than anything else, I think the story was, the Rangers, the players, the team, the preparation. All of what they've been talking about and wanting to keep the goals against, they slowly started to get back into the game. They scored the one goal. They get two goals. It's 2-2. And then Igor started to calm down. Now we start to see what Igor was really made of. And the end result is they win a game. Very important game. It was a 5-3 win. And for Igor... As he expressed himself afterwards, after the game, says, I was so nervous, but he found his way back into that game. So having said that, is the future looking really bright for Igor? Let's ask our Rangers beat writer that question. Welcome back, Rangers beat writer for the New York Post, Larry Brooks, now joins us. You can follow Larry on Twitter at NYP underscore Brooksy. Read his stories in the post and at NYPost.com. Dot com. Larry, welcome. Let's get right to it. Igor plays last night. Your thoughts? I know you spoke to him. He made some comments about how he felt before the game. And it was a little bit of a shaker, uh, shaky start for him, but he managed the game. Your thoughts? I thought he was very impressive. And, and there was an inescapable feel about the game that a new chapter has opened for the Rangers. And um, this is not disrespectful in any way to Henrik Lundqvist, who I think has played well this year. And I think he's probably going to play well the rest of the year too. Um, I think he'll, he'll perceive this as a bit of a challenge to him, but it's a new day here and there's no question about it. People were excited. 
I thought for all the buildup, uh, Shesterkin was uh, was calmer on the ice than than I'm sure he he felt. He said he was so nervous coming over to the game, he couldn't even uh, his hands were shaking, so he couldn't even hold a cup of water. Um, that was probably a bit of a an overstatement. He's he's kind of a funny guy. He's 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 got a sly sense of humor. He's got a dry sense of humor. He likes to crack jokes. I thought he was very composed. And after two of the first three went in, he did. And I, I think you're right. He managed the game. Very few rebounds. Um, and the Rangers played very well in front of him, too. And and I had actually asked David Quinn before the game why they hadn't brought him up, given him a couple of days of practice, and then maybe played him against the Devils on Thursday instead of throwing him in against the league's highest-scoring team. And he said, well, we had our reasons. And I wonder maybe if one of the reasons w- was not that the Rangers uh, might have felt more of a responsibility to buckle down and uh, play the 200-foot game in front of this uh, goaltender making his NHL debut that had been anticipated for years and years and years. Well, I was going to ask you that question. That makes a lot of sense. Uh, playing a rookie goaltender against a tough team really forced the team in front of them to really think defense. And I think more of the story is not so much Igor. It was the team. It was the way they responded, how they came back, how they managed to get back and play their game but still have some offense, score some goals. So more than anything else, it was a victory for the for, for the team itself and the coaching staff, don't you think? I think that's an excellent point. Um, I think that, again, the story, you know, in quotes, uh, was just Sterkin. Uh, you know, he and he's going to probably be the story a lot the rest of the year when he plays. However, I, I, I'm – you're absolutely right. They they play they played last night the way they have to play if they're going to hang in at all. They I thought they were very good on the one-on-ones. I thought they were very good on the on on the walls. They had possession below the hash marks in the Colorado zone and I thought they defended in the neutral zone very well. I mean, you know, you come in the the way the Rangers have played most of this year, you come into this matchup fearing I think, you know, that Colorado is going to be off to the races all night. And instead, the uh, the mckinnon landeskog Ratnan line was was was, uh, was almost invisible. I mean, the Rangers gave them almost nothing. McKinnon scored on the breakaway, but and he had one or two other chances. But you didn't see them coming through the neutral zone with speed. You didn't see Colorado coming through the neutral zone with speed. They, they made Colorado look like a very ordinary team. And now that, that, that uh, it was certainly a very impressive night for them, too. Yeah, I think the coaching staff and even the players, what they want, they don't want to be out of the playoffs, being that it's early January. They want to have hope. I mean, when you think about when you look at the standings, they're really only seven points out with a game in hand. So is it possible? Yes, and that's what you want. When you're having to grind every shift for every foot on the ice, you want to have some sort of goal. It's not just, okay, I need to play well. This is my job. You want to be playing for making the playoffs. So they're actually still in it, correct? Yeah, I think so. I, I think there's you have to attach some realism to it. They're, you know, X number of points out, um, but they've got f- five teams to leapfrog in order to make it. Um, but you don't know. And, you know, may- maybe Shesterkin comes in and gives them the kind of a jolt that Sean Burke gave to the Devils back in 1988 when I was working for New Jersey. And... Uh, you know, Burke came in after the Olympics and went, I think, 10 and one the rest of the year. And the Devils, of course, famously made the playoffs on the final day and, and went to the seventh game 
of the conference um, finals that year. So can Shesterkin, um, you know, give a jolt to this team? Yeah, possibly. You know, can they improve their defensive work? Well, certainly. Um, are they a realistic playoff contender? I'm not sure. And that, again, you know, I've talked about this for a while. I've written about it almost all year. Um, this, again, is is going to be the crux of the matter when management approaches the trade deadline, which is on February 24th. If the Rangers are in this kind of a spot, sort of alive, but not in a commanding position, and even if they're in a commanding position, what's their responsibility to this team as opposed to their responsibility to building a better team for next year and the year after and the year after. And those are the decisions that John Davidson and Jeff Gorton are going to have to make. So moving forward in the news is Leo Sanderson. He's, uh, he's been quoted back in Sweden and kind of discussing his well-being, his mental well-being, and some of the things he felt like might have been some unjust when he was with the team. He felt like he played well enough to be a regular, but it didn't happen. So I'm sure you're aware of that. What's do you have an update on us with him? He's not speaking to uh, media from North America at this point. Um, he only talked yesterday, um, as far as I know, because he went to a game in Gothenburg and a couple of reporters spotted him there and he talked. Uh, the Rangers aren't talking about this at all, which I I, I don't think is a real good look for them. Um, cause I, you know, I, I would like to know what they have to say about this. I, this is a very, this is very confusing. I understand, you know, Leas is talking about mental health and certainly that's paramount for everybody. I, I don't, I, I'm a little confused as to what he's referring to incidents. I don't know. I'm not sure if the Rangers know. And again, the Rangers aren't talking, they haven't spoken as an organization since he left um, uh, the Wolfpack. Um, what I will say is that I don't believe he did play well enough to merit a regular spot. What I, what I will say is I don't believe he played well enough to be the second line center coming out of training camp. And if he thought he played that well, then I think his self-evaluation is probably a little bit off. But I'm not. I'm not here to start bashing a 21-year-old kid who is who is obviously going through some pretty difficult times right now. Yeah, he's a very emotional guy, which and passionate. And you want to see that in a player, but sometimes you just need to stay quiet and and just do your work and be the best that you can be. But having said that, uh, you didn't think he he earned that um, position on the second line as a centerman. What are your thoughts on Ryan Strom? Because I'm looking at him right now. He's probably one of the most um, improved players on the team as a 26 year old when you look back at uh, him being a, dra a high draft pick by the Islanders you wonder why was he picked so high but I look at his numbers when he played major junior Niagara Falls and he was over a point a game and not only was he a goal scorer but he was a playmaker so he has it in him and right now he's almost a point a game so moving forward do you think the Rangers are going to make him part of this team going into next year good question um, his price point goes up with every with with every point he records. He is an arbitration eligible player, so um, if he wants to go short term on a one year deal because he only has one year to go until unrestricted free agency, if he wants to go one year on a salary arb deal, then he's going to be you know if if he continues to produce at this pace, he's going to be a five five and a half million dollar player. Do the Rangers think he's worth five five and a half million a year? I don't know. Um, that's a big ticket. If you're, if you're going to pay him five, five and a half million a year, 
you're assuming he's going to be your second line center for the life of that contract. So that means that Philip Heedle isn't. Uh, that means that Heedle now you've 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 kind of slotted into the third role. Is that the best place for Philip Heedle, or does he will he need uh, greater responsibility? Um, and I, the other question to ask is, it's kind of a two-parter, I guess. How much of Ryan Strom's production is is a result of his partnership with Artemi Panarin? And B, if much of his production is a result of his partnership with Artemi Panarin, is that a bad thing? You know, I mean, you're always looking for combinations, right? So if you've got the Panarin-Strom combination in the bank and you have a Zabanajad-Kreider combination, and yes, Chris Kreider is a whole other conversation, but if you've got that partnership in the bank too, you're starting off pretty well, you know, with, with your top two lines. And and so, again, these are, these are cap-related decisions that the Rangers are going to have to make. These are rebuild acceleration decisions the Rangers are going to have to make. In a, in a zero cap world, this would be very, very easy for the Rangers, honestly. You would sign Chris Kreider long term, you would sign Ryan Strome long term, and you deal with the fallout. But it's not a non-cap world situation, and the Rangers have very difficult decisions ahead. Well, another decision they have to make, and i got to go back to where we started with goaltending. Right now they have three goaltenders. And, yes, they bring Igor because Coach Quinn said he deserved it. But normally you bring a player up with an in, with, because there's an injury and you bring the player that's playing the best. So they not that uh, goaltending has been a weak spot. Goaltending has been good. Uh, Henrik's been playing well. Georgiev has been playing well. Now you bring him in. Is there more to it? to why they're bringing them in now. Could there be a trade around the corner when it comes to goaltending? It doesn't sound like it to me. Um, that, that doesn't mean that they won't work on a trade between now and the deadline. I don't think the three goaltender situation is tenable for any length of time. I think you can probably work your way through it for a few days or a week. But, um, you know, I... This is this is an unknown, and I th- and in addition to every other challenge David Quinn has, this is a massive challenge. How is he going to keep three goaltenders happy? How is he going to provide enough work at practice so the three of them can stay sharp? I, I think it's practically impossible to do that. Um, I would say it, there is almost no chance that Shesterkin will be traded. I would say there is almost no chance that Lundqvist will be traded. And that leaves the Rangers to find the best deal they can for Georgiev, who played well, but didn't play, I don't think, as well as he needed to over the last two, three weeks in order to cement a spot in the rotation. He had a chance to take the number one job away from Henrik. Let's let's be honest. He was playing a lot of games and he didn't. He wasn't quite able to do that. He He's had four of his last six starts. His save percentages have, have been below 865. Um, not all him, obviously, but but he's auditioning. And it's tough to have it's tough to have outings like that when you're auditioning. Um, the other thing about Georgiev is that, you know, people who see him all the time like him a lot. I like him a lot. The Rangers like him a lot. But basically, Every or every team in the league has someone like that in their organization. Has a young goalie, um, is you know. So what can the Rangers get for him in a trade? 
I'm not sure. Okay, well, we're going to end it with that because the future looks very good for the Rangers in all positions, and I'm anxious to see Igor in the next game. I'm I'm going to assume he's playing against New Jersey. Number 10, right wing, Ron Duguay. I belong here. The way I dressed was different. I had the big 80s hair, and I probably became more popular a few years ago with doing television than I was as a player. Walked the streets, and people recognized me. It is that time of the show where Ron Duguay tells a story of his past, and Ron remembers. Now, we've taken some time away from the epic lead up into this segment but i know ron has talked a lot about studio 54 and the show started with your story with share at studio 54 studio 54 is no longer found but it was a place where lots of memories were had and i know you have a great memory and ron remembers this week from studio 54 take it away ron well studio 54 has been well documented through a movie and documentary but let me just give it to you what it was like for me it was early 78, and um, my first introduction to studio was Donnie Murdoch. Donnie had just come off uh, a 40-game suspension. He invited me to go with him one night because he had a connection there, and it was uh, the guy working the door, and that's Mark Beneke. Mark Beneke was a big Ranger fan, and so I could remember going, and it was a Sunday night. Sunday night was always the better night to go. We'd play at home, and then you feel like you had a good game, and you go after the game. And then Mondays was really a good night to go to studio. For me, it was a day off, and I would start off by a nice Korean massage. Then I'd go to a restaurant called Il Vagabondo, uh, have some good food, and then head over to studio on a Monday night. And walking into studio was... Let me just say that there'll never be another Studio 54 because walking into this place was dark, a little bit creepy, but once you got through those doors and the dance floor and the music and the sounds, it was fireworks. It was um, electrifying. Uh, With the people that were there, you didn't know who you're going to meet. And I got to meet some of the crew, and the crew was Andy Warhol, Halston, Liza Minnelli, Elizabeth Taylor, Bianca Jagger. And uh, from the athletes, I for me, I was um, close friends with um, John McEnroe um, and other Vetus Gerolitis. And so we go there, and a lot of it was the music, just being on a dance floor. We're just having a whole fun. And there was three levels to studio. It was the main floor, the dance floor, where I spent most of my time. And then there was downstairs, where it's a little bit different. I went there one time. And I felt like I wasn't very comfortable there. That was Steve Robel, the owner. He, he had a lot of his friends there. And then there was the balcony. It was upstairs. And that was a little bit different. If you met someone, he kind of quietly went up there and he spent some time with that person. And so I wanted to take it back to a um, when I mentioned Donnie Murdoch. Donnie was um, a, a good friend, teammate. And uh, there were situations where we had to pull him out of situations. And this one time, I'll never forget, I was there with Ron Gressner. And Donnie Murdoch... And because you didn't know who was who in there, because everyone was welcome. Steve Rebell wanted to make sure everyone was welcome. Young and old, whether you're straight, whether you're gay, with transgender, it didn't matter. Race, color, didn't matter. He wanted everyone to be in there, and they want everyone to get along. So at times, you didn't know who was who. So Donnie Murdoch was, was very close with this one woman up the stairs. So Gresh and I were watching him. Pretty woman, African-American, and, and he's just, like, kissing away, like, really liking this woman. We never met this woman before. And sure enough, Bart Beneke, who worked the door, come to Gresh, said, listen, um, you may want to tell Donnie uh, to go up there and do the check. 
Do the check? Really? Okay. And so the woman leaves, goes to the restaurant. We call Donnie down. Donnie, you need to do the check. Do the check? Really? Are you kidding me? Yeah. So he goes back upstairs. The woman comes back. And she was wearing a skirt. And so we're watching Donnie to see if he's going to do the check. Sure enough, there goes the hand up the skirt. <laughs> and he pulls his hand down. And you can tell this confrontation between him and this person. And who he thought was a woman was not a woman. <laughs> and, and so he got a whole handful. And if you could just imagine, by then, there was a whole crowd downstairs because we knew what Donnie was doing. And we were just laughing hysterically. And for the next two or three months, that's what Donnie Murdoch heard. In the dressing room was Donnie. What was it like? And that's just one of the stories that I can share with you. There are so many. And I'll probably share with you more in the future. In fact, now that I think about because I mentioned the name Bianca Jagger and I mentioned Halston. I was at Halston's house. He had the most unique house. His house was the most contemporary home in the 80s in Manhattan. And I was there and I was there with Bianca Jagger. Don't tell Mick, by the way. Although I did meet Mick later on. Um, so that's kind of a little bit what it was like for me back then. There's so much to tell for every month that I was in New York, every month that I was there, there's always a, I can probably write a book. Very interesting. That's it. I sign off. Welcome back. It's Ron Duguay. And my next guest is not a hockey player, but he was a man that, uh, was on the ice. He was an official over 2000 games, over 30 years. He retired in 2010. Probably the most respected official of all time. I got to know him. I've gotten to really know him off the ice in the last 10 years or so. And um, so I welcome a friend, Kerry Fraser. Welcome to the show, Kerry. Duke, it's always a pleasure to be with you, my friend. Well, let's get right to it. The most important question, and we've heard this comment so many times, the hair. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and so because I was... Uh, recognized for my style and playing in New York. A lot of it had to do with the big hair. And you come in in 1980, correct? That's and, correct. And there we are with this guy, that uh, happy, young-looking, and awesome-looking hair. How how important was it for you when you stepped on the ice, not only to call a good game, but also to look good and feel like what you were doing was part of uh, a bigger thing, which was entertaining, entertainment. Well, you know, Ron, uh, first impressions can often be lasting. And uh, I think it's really important, especially being diminutive in size, You're like five, seven and a half. And uh, at that point, I was maybe 160 pounds, uh, that I commanded some respect, uh, authoritative figure, but not confrontational or not in your face kind of guy. Uh, we bring a certain personality with us onto the ice, whether we're players uh, or officials. And that component uh, sometimes uh, will surface. And the things that we learned, whether it was in the schoolyard, in our environment at home, uh, as we played and went on to play junior and beyond, um, you develop certain characteristics and traits that are sort of, they can be spontaneous combustion. Uh, they're down in the pit of your stomach. And when you're challenged, uh, they sometimes just fly out uncontrolled. Um, and so I think that to your question, uh, looking the part is as important uh, for that first step of gaining respect uh, from an authoritative position. 
Well, let me ask you, for, for a player, there's a learning curve as you go through the NHL, just knowing how to play the game and how to behave and how to speak to officials. What was it like for you when you first started, knowing with all the characters on the ice, and there were many back then, how did you know how to speak to them? Because speaking to them with players that, we, uh, that were playing back then, it was a little bit of a hostile environment. How did you know how to manage them? Well, the first thing I had to do was manage myself, and it was in a – a confrontation I had in my very first season in the, in the NHL in 1980. It was in Edmonton. It was with Wayne Gretzky, the greatest player that, you know, arguably of all time, but certainly uh, was the face of the game as, as a young player even then. And uh, my, uh, my flare-up was if somebody tried to embarrass me, and Gretzky, right from the opening face-off, took a dive against the Philadelphia Flyers, Bobby Clark and, and his crew, uh, in uh, the Northlands Coliseum as visitors. And the more Wayne dove, the more stubborn I got. It was that, that part of me that would be angry uh, and not calm. Uh, so I didn't call a foul on him all night. I mean, I, I made up my mind after that first dive when he was looking – sideways to see if my arm went up before he hit the ice and the crowd started booing immediately when my arm did not go up I made a, a pact with myself that you know what buckle you can play the rest of the game on your knees because I'm not going to call anything when you try to embarrass me well with a minute and change left and and uh, the flyers up by one power play was the best option for the uh, Oilers with that great team of future Hall of Famers and Pelly Lindbergh caught the puck I stopped the play and Wayne, behind the net, jumped in the air with nobody around him, threw his hands out one way, his feet the other way, and he did a belly flop on the ice. Bobby Clark skated over to him with no teeth. He said, get up, Gretzky, you blank baby. I went over to him, and I said, Wayne, what are you doing? I said, there was nobody within 15 feet of you. He said, you wouldn't call it anyway. You haven't called a blank thing all night. I said, you're right. I'm going to start right now. Boom, you got two for unsportsmanlike conduct. I gave him a penalty. He said, thanks. It's about blank time you called something. And he charged to the dressing room, never even went to the penalty box. Now, in that, uh, like you, and I know you are very uh, studious of the way you play. Everything has to be perfect. Uh, you want to be the best you can be. No different than me. After every game, right from the start to the very end in 2010, my last game, I replayed every game afterward to see if there was something I could have done better. Well, this was obvious. My personal makeup, my characteristics that were flawed, responded in a poor way that was inhibiting the game that I love. It was uh, in violation of the rules that I was charged to enforce, my impartiality. Uh, it, it just checked off all the negative boxes. And I recognized in that moment, I have to be better. I have to control the things about me that have been instinctive, and they served me well as a player to the junior A level in Ontario, but they weren't going to serve me well as a referee in the National Hockey League. I would fail if I didn't understand and curb these sorts of responses. Wow, great story. I guess it uh, it goes to uh, occasionally, Claude Lemieux's son is playing for the Rangers, and it appears like the officials and and Coach Quinn has made this comment, like they have it in for him. They'll make calls against him. Is there such a thing as officials having it in with certain players? You know, that's uh, personality, uh, yes. Human nature, yes. 
uh, hopefully, uh, and, and I love Brandon Lemieux. He's a great kid. You know, when, when uh, Claude uh, made his comeback with San Jose, uh, I had a game, and uh, I was sitting in Joe's restaurant after the game in San Jose, and in walked Claude and his son Brandon. They joined me at the table, and this kid was like, I'm thinking 12 to 13 years old. He had the most intelligent hockey IQ. In the questions he asked me, he was way beyond his years uh, in, in terms of his, his uh, thought process with the game and, and trying to figure things out. When he played in the OHL, uh, he would call me uh, because they were picking on him big time. I know they had a bias against him, uh, and it would appear at certain times uh, that his reputation is preceding him now in the NHL. Uh, my counseling to him is he's got to get the referees to understand that uh, he's not adversarial. He doesn't want to be. He wants to be respectful and to set the table for them. He needs to be bigger if uh, he's being retaliated against and the guys on the other side with the stripes. Develop relationships. Duke, I got to tell you, there's nothing more powerful and more productive than developing professional positive relationships, whether it's in the dressing room with your teammates or whether it's with the officials on the ice that you don't want to have to play against. And that always comes back and bites you. So because this is a hockey show, Ranger hockey show, let's talk Madison Square Garden. I can know you've been in every building in the league. Was there something different about walking into coming into Manhattan, going and, and officiating it at the garden for you? Oh, absolutely. You know what? I, I selected Madison square garden as the venue for my milestone games. First, my 1000th game, which is recognized by the league for a referee. And then my 1500, as I was the first referee ever to do that, accomplish that number it created a new milestone for uh, for future uh, officials that uh, achieve that mark. I picked Madison Square Garden as the venue, and I picked the Toronto Maple Leafs, two original six teams, to play in that game, uh, those milestone games that I had. My first impression of walking into Madison Square Garden was one of jaw-dropping awe. It was amazing to me that you get on at street level and you take an elevator five floors up to the ice surface level. And then walking out and looking up at the ceiling, it just, I was mesmerized by it. I saw it on TV so many times as a kid growing up in Sarnia, Ontario, Canada, you know, hockey night in Canada and, and uh, playoff games and, and all the history that came uh, with that original six franchise. Uh, and the city itself was something really special. And, you know, you're a Canadian kid from Sudbury. I mean, I can't imagine when you uh, landed in, in New York, that city, uh, with all the glitz and the glitter, uh, how impressive it was for you. It was no different for me as a referee. I love the city. I love the franchise. And I've got some great friends uh, like Mark Messier and uh, Brian Leach and, and that group of guys, uh, even uh, after you and, and your crew, Rod Gilbert, what an awesome dude. Uh, you know, you name it. And there's, there's an element of class that the New York Ranger organization has for me similar to the Montreal Canadian franchise uh, in Canada. Yeah, I, and speaking for myself, I'm still in awe every time I step in the building. You and I recently played an exhibition game there where you're the official playing against Boston. For me to step on the ice, it's still such a thrill because I still I can tap into my first year in 77 playing there. But moving on, I want to talk a little bit about where you're at now, Kerry. I know you've written a book, The Final Cut, 
Why did Final you write call. that book? Final call, well, I'm sorry. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, cut like you're done. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Final call, a, sorry. There was a lot of guys that wanted to see me cut, but, uh, <laughs> and, and, you know, and Larry Brooks being one of them. Uh, and I uh, developed a, a positive relationship with Larry at the post uh, after he uh, wrote an article that said uh, in the playoffs that Kerry Fraser should be fired and banned from the league. <laughs> Well, yikes. I'm going to be talking to him after this. I'm going to have to ask him about that. Yeah, well, we developed a relationship after that, just like I did with Stan Fischler, uh, who uh, wrote an article in my first year, uh, called me Little Lord Fauntleroy, and that every time he saw me on the ice, he was so angry he wanted to come down and punch me uh, until I met him uh, and shook his hand in uh, Long Island in his TV studio room. Uh, I went to seek him out uh, just to introduce myself to him so he could have a first-count account of uh, what he uh, perceived. Anyway, uh, sorry for uh, digressing to a different uh, part. Um, what was your initial question? I've forgotten. Why the book? What was oh, the idea well, behind the book? Absolutely. Great question. And I'll tell you why. Because after every game, and you alluded to the fact that I'm very highly recognizable, didn't wear a helmet, didn't want to cover up the do. Uh, little guy uh, carried himself uh, maybe a little bigger and could be abrasive to some. And every time after a game, we'd go into a, an establishment like you guys, and we'd have you know a beer and something to eat. And the fans would typically be in that uh, that place. And I'd see the stairs. I always sat with my back to the wall. I looked and surveyed the room like I would the ice. And I'd see people, guys, you know, maybe whispering or they'd be having a scowl in their face. I would, being a people person, wanting to create relationships, I would walk over, extend my hand, introduce myself, and I'd say, do you have a question for me? And a guy might say, yeah, I got a question for you. Tell me about this, blah, blah, blah. Now, why did you make that call or miss that call? So I'd answer it politely, and then I'd say, do you have another question? And then he would ask something else, but in a little softer tone. And before three or four questions are done, he's buying me a beer and we're having a good conversation and I'm finding out about him. So the premise of the book was that guys, fans, male, female, whatever, kids, when they buy a ticket to the game, the very closest they can get is that front row behind the glass. They want to know what goes on on the other side of the glass. They want to be in the game. So my book was a, a computation of all of 30 years in the NHL and, and some of the minor leagues before that in the, in the track to get there to bring fans into my world. There's some controversial parts to it, but there's also a lot of laughs. There's a family. We all have to deal with that. And, and fans sometimes forget that we're human. You know, we, when you go to a game and, and you might not be 100%, they don't know that you might have had something going on at home or you might be playing with an injury. And all they expect is you guys are like rock stars and you got to be there all the time, every game. Sometimes they're not that good at work. Uh, and it's the human side. This book uh, really shows that. It shows also in a very impactful story that happened in Madison Square Garden with Theron Fleury when he was there for one year, uh, I think an $8 million free agent signing, uh, and had been put in the substance abuse program by the league uh, to start that season. And Tyson Nash, a second-year uh, player with the St. Louis Blues, coached by Joel Quinville at the time. Uh, I mediated a confrontation between those two that uh, trying to make 
something good out of something bad that has stood the test of time. And both players even talked about it today. And it was a simple apology that I uh, requested and forced from Tyson Nash to Theron Fleury for trash-talking him at the end of the first period in a scrum. It is really an impactful story. All right, so where can we buy the final call? Well, it's on Amazon. I mean, it came out. It was a bestseller in hardcover in 2010. I sat down to write it right after my final game. Hardest thing I ever did. I wrote the book cover to cover in two and a half months. Uh, and uh, it, it came out really good. Wayne Gretzky wrote the foreword. Uh, following that, uh, it came out in paperback, and it still continues to sell. You can get it on Amazon. It's in uh, ebook as well. Uh, I should have done it in uh, in a uh, an audio book. That would have been fun uh, to tell the stories uh, from my perspective with my voice and get some of even the guys involved in it to read. Okay, and we can find you at uh, K Fraser the Call. Uh, yes, on, on Twitter and uh, on uh, Instagram as well. K Fraser the Call. Okay, listen, great talking with you. Good stories, and we'll have to do it again. We wish you the very best, my friend. Ronnie, thanks a lot. You are a champion, and uh, I concede that your hair was better than mine. (laughs) (laughs) It's not bad. You finished second. All right. I'll take it. I'll take it. Ladies and gentlemen, we ask that you direct your attention to Center Ice for a special a wrap for episode six of up in the blue seas thanks to our producer jake brown for making it happen subscribe to the show and rate us five stars wherever you get your podcast you can also follow me on twitter at ron 10 thanks for joining us every week see you next thursday